Uh, my name is Josh Toby, and I have the awesome privilege of overseeing our student ministry here. And my wife Stephanie and I are a week away from being here for a year, and we totally love Southbridge and Southbridge students. And uh, we're really excited about what God is doing in our student ministry. So if there's any way that we can assist you and your family, we would totally love to do that. So please come uh, check us out. Um, how many of you are married to your high school sweetheart? Anybody? Am I the only one in the room? Okay, maybe. Hopefully not. All right. I met my wife, Stephanie, when I was a freshman in high school. She went to another school, a different school than me, and we started hanging out in these big groups together. And at first, I wasn't really interested because she was taller than me. You know what I'm talking about, right? That just doesn't work. And uh, I'm 6'5", so she was like 6'6". And um, I'm like, so this isn't going to work. And, but over time, what happened was is I developed this interest in her. And so I wanted to talk to her on the phone all the time. I wanted to just hang out with her all the time. And I could confess, for the time that I was a senior in high school, I knew that I was going to marry this girl. Right? I knew it. This, this is the woman. And uh, we ended up dating for a total of seven years. And got engaged for, we were engaged for 18 months. Both of those are ridiculous. Um, but that's just kind of how it worked. I was in another state going to school, and it was the, the first semester of my junior year, I bought her a ring. It was at Thanksgiving time. And uh, I told myself I was going to wait till the summer to give it to her. So from November to the summer to wait. And we ended up getting engaged that next month at Christmas. And uh, I, I can't hold gifts back from her. I love to give her gifts. And our, in fact, our first Christmas of being married in 2005, uh, I actually gave her her Christmas gifts on December 7th. And I bought them on December 6th, okay? So I knew for me that uh, I just love to give her things. And even to this day, she's like, can I go buy this? I'm like, sure. You know, we'll just make more of that money every day, you know? But what happened for me is uh, as I got to know her, I went from being interested to being devoted, right? And that's what we've seen in the book of Acts so far, right? A common theme is that um, the apostles are proclaiming the name of Jesus and people are interested in the message of Jesus. But then for some, they're becoming totally devoted, And that's what we're going to be talking about uh, this morning as we continue our series in the book of Acts called Movement. And if you were here a few weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. They had this property and they sold the property and brought the money to the apostles to be to use for the work of the ministry. The problem is what? They lied, right, about the money that they gave. They said that they gave all the money from the property being sold, but the problem is that they held some back. And so ultimately they they were being hypocrites. They were presenting something to everybody else that wasn't reality. They were putting on a front that they wanted everyone to think more highly of them than they should. And so what happened was, if you remember the story, God killed them. And so because of God killing them, uh, people realized that God takes sin seriously. And so what happened was this great fear developed over all the people. And so Pastor Scott talked last week and the story right after that and the apostles are doing amazing miracles and people are being healed and people are just praying for Peter's shadow to fall on them so they'll be healed and other people are ready to jump in and be totally devoted to the work and the person of Jesus. But yeah, others were just interested and weren't quite ready to take that risk because they knew that God takes sin seriously. And so this morning we want to talk more about that risk that many people are taking the risk of the idea of you being interested in something and then totally becoming devoted to it. And so our big idea this morning is that daring faith leads to supernatural devotion. Daring faith leads to supernatural devotion. And why is this devotion we're talking about have to be supernatural? Like, what does the word supernatural mean? The word supernatural is a behavior that is caused by the intervention of God. Daring faith leads to supernatural devotion. And so why does the devotion have to be supernatural? I would make the biblical argument is because our faith is supernatural. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. So what's the truth here? Is that our faith is actually a gift of God's grace. And I would make the argument that the devotion that we're going to see in the apostles today is a response to the amazing grace of God. So daring faith leads to supernatural devotion. So the question I want you to consider as we jump in to Acts chapter 5 is this. How far will your devotion to Jesus take you? How far will your devotion to Jesus take you? And we're going to see what is true for uh, the apostles here. We're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. It says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with them, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. Now, this is a connecting verse to the previous text that we looked at last week of the apostles doing amazing miracles, of some being hesitant to jump into the mission of God, and others are like totally devoted. All right, and so coming out of that story, the Sadducees, it says, are filled with jealousy. They're resentful. They're bitter towards the apostles. And why is that? Because the Sanhedrin is the most powerful and most popular people on the planet. And we have this movement that's taking place outside of their power and outside of their popularity. And so because of that, they're not happy about that. And so what we see is another theme in the book of Acts is that God does something crazy like changing lives and people coming to know him. And then what happens is the Sanhedrin gets upset and they start doing crazy stuff. We're going to see the story develop as now God's going to respond. And we're going to look at this in verse 18. It says that they arrested the apostles and they put them in public prison. So the the Sanhedrin's response to the apostles is that they throw them in jail. It says public prison. This is the idea that there's every kind of uh, prisoner there. So you have the apostles there who love Jesus and you have murderers there. All right, it's a significant prison. It's a public prison. And so we're going to see here now, look what God does in verse 19. It says, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison door and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the, the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. And so the apostles are thrown in prison because the Sanhedrin's upset about this movement not being centered around them. They don't like this movement. And so what happens is an angel of the Lord then lets them out of prison. And so we see this theme in Acts of of God doing something, the Sanhedrin responding, and then God doing something. And God's like, here's the thing, my movement's not stopping. It doesn't matter what you do, Sanhedrin, my message is going forward. And so this angel of the Lord sets them out of prison, lets them go free. And what does he tell them to do in verse 20? He says, I want you to go and I want you to stand in the temple And I want you to speak to the people all the words of this life. You see, here's the reality, is that devotion requires obedience. And we see for the apostles here that they are totally devoted to this life, right? They're totally devoted. I love that it's a capital L. Do you catch that there? It's a capital L in the text. All the words of this life is God's like, I want you to go and I want you to proclaim my name in the public place of the temple. And here's the reality about this life. This life is totally about one person. It's totally about one person. It's about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so the celebration and the proclamation of the apostles is not a celebration and proclamation of a baby being born or a man dying on a cross or a man being in a tomb, but it's a proclamation of the resurrected Lord who through his grace we receive total life change. That's what this message is about, proclaiming him. And so we're going to see right in verse 21 that when they heard this, They entered the the temple, and at daybreak, they began to teach. So what's taking place? Their devotion is totally leading to obedience. 
No, here's what's important for us to understand is that the obedience, of, the order of obedience is important. The obedience that they're carrying out has already happened because Jesus Christ is the hero of their story. Jesus Christ is the star of their show. And so because of that, what's taking place is obedience. Please understand this, that they realize that God is pleased with them because of Jesus. And the problem that we have so many times in our day-to-day is that we think that if I'm just going to obey God all the time, that God's going to be pleased with me. And what happens is that leads to moralism. The reality is, is this, is that God is pleased with me solely because of the work of Jesus. Right, and his work upon the cross for me. And so they totally get that here in verse 21. And so the thing we have to think through is what is the word obedience? What does it mean? Here's a definition for you. Obedience is responding to the grace God has already given, which results in pleasing him. Notice that obedience starts with God's grace. That's significant. That's a significant part of the story. And I would make this argument that every part of our life is different than this. Growing up in the Tovey home, I was obedient to my dad because I didn't want my dad to be upset with me. As an employee, I don't want to upset my boss. And maybe you're the same way, right? You don't want to upset those whom you work for. You want to make them look good because you want them to be pleased with you. But here's the truth. In my walk with Jesus, God is pleased with me because of Jesus. And that's a freeing message for me then to obey him as a response to the amazing grace that he's extended to me. That's total freedom. It's important that we get that. And so how has this played out in the disciples' life? Think about the apostles uh, before the death of Jesus. Remember Jesus said to Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, no, I'm not. I'm ready to die for you. What are you talking about? And what happens? Peter denies Jesus. Where he denies that he even knows them. He's standing around a fire. In John chapter 18, he's warming himself. And a woman says, hey, hey, aren't you one of them? No. Three times that happens. But what's different now then? How come they're being thrown in prison and God gets them out of prison and says, I want you to go and proclaim my name. Why are they ready to go do that? The answer is grace. Grace is the difference. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And the truth about grace is this, is that it ruins us and restores us. It ruins me because it reveals that I need a a savior, that I'm a total sinner, that I'm on on a path to hell if I don't know Jesus. And the way that it restores us is that it points us to our savior. It points us to the person and the work of Jesus. And so for the apostles, they've totally embraced this grace, totally embraced it, that through grace that Jesus is the hero. And so they're all about this life, capital L in verse 20. And this life is all about redemption. It's all about salvation. It's all about eternal life. And we see that playing out in their life. And here's the biblical truth is that grace motivates obedience. Here's the truth in your life right now. In your battle with sin, in your battle with whatever you battle in in your own flesh and whatever you've been dealing with forever and a long time or whatever is going on in your heart and your life, here's the truth is that grace is going to motivate you. So what does that mean? It means we got to get our focus off our sin and get our focus on our Savior. Because while my focus is on my sin, who's my focus not on? On Jesus, right? That grace ushers in, so it allows me to then be focused on him, and that's a game changer for me. It's total freedom, total freedom, and we need to be able to wrap our mind around that. And this is what I love about Acts 5, is that Acts 5 doesn't have the word grace in it. It's not even there. But this is the biblical truth, is that the effects of it are everywhere. Right? It's all over the text. It's found all throughout it. It's important that we get that. So here's the truth is that supernatural grace leads to supernatural obedience. And that's what we see taking place here. So here's the question for you. How far will your devotion take you? How far will your devotion to Jesus this morning take you? 
It's important for us to be able to think through these questions because here's the truth. Are you ready to be obedient at all costs? Are you ready to be obedient in how you run your business? Are you ready to be obedient in how you love your wife and how you raise your kids? Right? All those things that God's called us to, are you ready to do that? Because our devotion is totally important. Let's see how the story continues. So in verse 21, they choose to obey Jesus and they go and preach the gospel. What's significant in many translations, there's actually a break in verse 21 in the middle of the verse, like a new paragraph starts. And it says this, Now when the high priest came and those who were with them, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And so here's what's happening in the story, is that the apostles are proclaiming Jesus' name in the temple. Right, they're in there sharing about this amazing life that you can experience through Jesus. And the Sanhedrin gets up that morning, they get their nice little robes on, and they're ready to go for this trial to demonstrate how powerful they are and how much cooler they are than the apostles. And guess what happens? They send for their people to go get the apostles. The person comes running back, and he says, yeah, the guards are standing out front. Um, the, the prison is securely locked, but here's the truth, is that they're gone. There's no one in the prison. They're totally gone. And it tells us that they're greatly perplexed about this message. And I, I love verse 25. It says this in verse 25. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. I love that. It's a somebody. It's a someone. Right? They're greatly perplexed. And here comes someone. Hey, yeah, um, Sanhedrin, those people that you told not to talk about your name anymore, those people that you tried to lock in prison with your own power, they're actually proclaiming the name that you can't stand in the temple courts. In verse 26, we see that they have them brought to them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And this is what we're seeing with the apostles, is they had this, their devotion led to an amazing obedience. It was a supernatural devotion. Right, because of a supernatural grace that they've experienced in their heart and in their life. And so now we're going to see this, is that devotion provides mission and purpose. Devotion provides mission and purpose. And so if I'm being obedient to Jesus, I'm going to accept the mission and purpose that he provides for me. And here's the thing. If you don't know Jesus this morning, I would ask this question. What's your purpose? Because here's the truth. If I know Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, I have a purpose. I have a mission that he's inviting me into to take part in. And so what's going to happen is the trial is going to start here in verse 27, right? The apostles' trial is getting started. And why is it, why are they in trial? Because they proclaim the name of Jesus. It says this in verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in the name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you have intended to bring this man's blood upon us. I love verse 27 because in my mind, I would be thinking the first question should be, how did you get out of my prison? Right? But that's not the question. And the truth is they don't want to know the answer. The Sadducees don't believe in angels. And so they wouldn't have liked the answer that they would have heard. But what do they ask? They tell them two things that we're charging you not to teach in the name. That means this. We're not asking you not to teach in the name. We're not requesting, we're demanding that you don't teach in the name of Jesus. And they tell them, they, they tell them two things, that you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and that you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. 
Now, in, a, in Matthew chapter 27, when Jesus is on trial, he's with Pilate. And if you might remember the story, one time a year, Pilate lets a prisoner go. And the people get to choose which prisoner is going to be set free. And in that day, it was Barabbas and it was Jesus. And Pilate's like, I don't know what Jesus deserves anything. He might be crazy. He's kind of weird, maybe. But he hasn't done anything that deserves any sort of crazy punishment. But then we have Barabbas over here who is a murderer, right? Who deserves ultimately the death penalty. And the people and uh, the, the Sanhedrin and the chief priests in Matthew chapter 27, verse 20, they actually persuade the crowd to let Barabbas go free so they can destroy Jesus. They want to destroy him. And here's the thing, is that we need to learn to live life with a gospel lens. We need to be able to walk through every part of life wearing a gospel lens because here's the truth. This is an amazing picture of the gospel. Here's Barabbas, a murderer, a sinner who's set in a cell, who's stuck in the cell of sin. And the reality is unless Jesus arrives on the scene, he's never getting free from his cell. And here's the biblical truth is that the people scream for Barabbas to be free and they scream, crucify Jesus, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. It's an amazing picture of the gospel for us. And then it gets crazy because Pilate says to the people, fine, you want Jesus? You can have him, but I am innocent of his blood. And then in verse 25 of Matthew 27, it says this, and all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. So back to Acts chapter 5, verse 28. The apostles' trial, the Sanhedrin says to them, you're trying to bring this guy's blood upon us. Well, actually, you said you wanted it upon you in Matthew 27. It's an amazing part of the story. And I got to believe if I'm the Sanhedrin, how does this dead man keep coming up? Why is this name such a big deal? Why does he, why we keep having these conversations about this Jesus? And they say that you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And by making that statement, they are totally demonstrating their view of Jesus, aren't they? He's just a man. Do you realize that your view of Jesus affects every part of your life? Do you realize that your view of Jesus dictates how you're going to love your wife, respond to your spouse, how you're going to raise your kids, the kind of employee that you're going to be is totally demonstrated on your view of Jesus? It's important that we get that right and we get that accurate because every step, every action, every thought, every motive is totally demonstrating who I believe Jesus is. So here's a question. How did you demonstrate Jesus this past week? What we're going to see in verse 29 is the apostles respond to the Sanhedrin. We're going to see their view of Jesus. It says this in verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Why must they obey God? Because God's provided us with grace. God's provided us with the very thing that creates life change. God's changed my life for the good. Think about who they were before Jesus died and who they are now, right? Their life is totally different, right? They've embraced this mission, They're going to proclaim the name of Jesus. They're going to proclaim the gospel message to the whole Sanhedrin. And I want to be very clear with you this morning that I am super excited to be part of a body of believers here at Southbridge Fellowship that are not ashamed of the name of Jesus. And I can tell you this, every ministry that you see at Southbridge ultimately fits under the umbrella of lifting high his name. And here's the truth. I don't know what your view of Jesus is this morning, whether you think he's God, whether you just think he's a man like the Sanhedrin, whether you don't like him, whether you hate him, but here's the biblical truth. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that every single person is going to bow their knee before him and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Are you ready for that day? Because it's coming. 
You got to be ready for it. And so why must they obey God? Because of the gospel message. Look at verse 30 with me. It says they're going to share this amazing life, capital L, that we saw in verse 20. It says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. They raised Jesus. So this implies that Jesus died. And here's the truth that we need to embrace, is that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin. He rose from the dead to defeat our sin. Right? If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, we're still stuck in it. All right? And here's the thing, is a lot of churches want to elevate the resurrection one day a year on Easter, but I would make the argument that's the most important moment in the history of the world. Okay, so we need, that's an important moment that we need to be elevating here, right? That he rose from the dead. That means that he covered all your past sin, all your past failures, all your past mistakes, all your current issues, all the things you're battling now, all your struggles, addictions. He's paid for that. And the future things that you haven't committed, that you're going to commit, he's paid for those. And then Peter tells him in verse 30, not only did God raise him, but you killed him by hanging him on a tree. And the Sanhedrin's probably thinking, that's exactly right. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And I would make the argument for Peter that Peter's like, no, I want you to understand that uh, he creates life change. That I want you to meet him. I want you to know him. I want you to experience him. And so what we see in verse 31 is we see the results of this life. We see the results of Jesus Christ dying on the cross and raising from the dead. And it says this in verse 31, that God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You see, God exalted Jesus and it gives them two titles, that he's the leader and that he's the, what does it say? The savior, right? And he's been exalted into a position. And in this exalted position, he demands man's obedience, totally demands it because of the, the position that he's in. And it calls him a leader. And I love that phrase, right? You don't see Jesus called a leader very often in scripture, right? Now, what's significant about that is many times is that leaders take responsibility for things that they didn't do. And that's exactly what Jesus did, right? And so the Sanhedrin is listening to, the, to Peter and the apostles as they tell him, we must obey God because of the grace that he's given, because he's the leader and because he's our savior, that he has saved us from our sin. And the results of him dying and raising is that repentance are here and forgiveness is here. And here's the truth is that repentance totally flows out of the grace of God. Forgiveness totally flows out of the grace of God. We got to get that right. The fact that I can respond with repentance and, re and go to him and confess my sin to him is a total act of his grace towards us. It's important that we understand. So what is repentance? Repentance is a 180 degree turn. Right? I'm once walking one way in my own sin. When I repent, I'm turning away from my sin and walking towards Jesus. That's repentance. And I would make the argument that it's a daily practice in the life of a believer. But here's the biblical truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says this, that without repentance, there is no salvation. Right? We, it says that repentance leads to salvation. So that means without it, we can't be saved. It's important that we gather that, that we know that. And so not only is repentance a total act of God's grace, but we also see forgiveness. And forgiveness means that God separates the sin from the sinner so that when God looks at you, he looks at you through the lens of Jesus. That's awesome. That is awesome. Psalms tells us that God separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And so what does he forgive us of? He forgives us of our sin. He forgives us of our passion, our passionless for him. He forgives us for our lack of devotion, our lack of commitment to his name and his mission. That's what he forgives us for. And why are the apostles so bold and so brave? 
Verse 32 says this, and we are witness to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those whom obey him. So here's the reality. The reason the apostles are so bold is because of what they've witnessed, what they've experienced with Jesus. Right, and I would make the observation that I think um, I love Southbridge because we see life change a lot here. And what I love about life change and why I believe it's, a, it's so attractive is because it totally elevates God. It's not about elevating man. It's about elevating the one who creates life change. Would we all agree with that? There's an author named um, Judd Wilhite, and he wrote a book called Soul Searching, and the subtitle was The Religious and Spiritual Lives of Teenagers. And what he found is that students' view of the gospel does not rely on grace. And then what he also found is that their parents' view of the gospel does not rely on grace. And so what happens is, is the term that he throws is not a, it's not really a new term, but it's the term moralistic therapeutic deism, right? Moralistic therapeutic deism. It's the idea that the gospel is about moralism, that if I do good, God will be happy with me. God will be good with me. It's therapeutic in that um, if I turn to Jesus, then every part of my life is going to be great and happy all the time. It's deistic that I turn to God and then God leaves me to do my own thing and figure it out. So what we have then is parents who don't understand the gospel and the grace of God informing their kids about their inaccurate view of the gospel. And so it's a miss. And we're starting to see this a lot. I can remember at my old, the old church I served at was a church that just like Southbridge that loved Jesus and loved his word. Right? One of their big pillars was proclaiming, proclaiming Jesus with, with boldness. All right? So they're all about him. I stood in front of our youth group, high school students, and I said, I want you to tell me what the gospel is. Dead quiet. How can, how can this be? Right? The answer is, is because parents aren't communicating the gospel. So the question is, do the parents get it? Do the parents get it that it's all about God's grace? And here's the truth. If you can't confess it, you probably haven't experienced it. If you can't articulate it, you probably don't know it. And for the apostles, they're here proclaiming Jesus, that it's about his death and resurrection, and that his grace is the game changer for them to be obedient and to engage in the mission of Jesus. They've made the cross of Christ personal, haven't they? They've engaged with it on a personal level. And what I love you see is you, as we continue to unfold the book of Acts, we're going to constantly see the apostles bringing people to a crossroads every day about who, what are they going to do with Jesus, right? Constantly a crossroads, every corner, every turn in the book of Acts. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? Here's the gospel. How are you going to respond? It's an amazing message, this gospel. And they were passionate about Jesus. And their devotion, it refers to them being passionate, that they're committed to something greater than themselves, that they're willing to do whatever they have to do for the sake of the mission. And so now we get to hear the Sanhedrin's response. So the Sanhedrin brings it before them. The Sanhedrin tells them, we don't like what you're doing. We don't like the name of Jesus. They don't like to talk, use the name, to be honest with you. Peter responds, we're going to obey God because of grace. Here's the life that we love so much that's changed us because we've experienced it and witnessed it. Sanhedrin's turn to respond. In verse 33, it says this, and when they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill him or kill them. Now, if you go back to Acts chapter four, verse two, it actually tells us that they were annoyed. And so what we're seeing here is their intensity is rising. 
And verse 34 says, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this understanding or undertaking is of man, it'll fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing to God. And it says that they took his advice. And so we have Gamaliel, uh, uh, someone up that, that's popular that they trust. He dismisses the apostles and he turns to them and he says, hey, we got to talk about these guys. And here's what I think. I think we should just kind of let them go because here's the truth is if it's not of God, it's going to fail. I don't know if you've ever gone to Google before, but you can go to Google and you can actually um, search out people who claim to be Jesus. And for some reason, it's a growing list, which I was really kind of surprised by. But in, uh, maybe you remember this name in 1997, the name Marshall Applewhite. He said that he was Jesus, the son of God. And his following was called Heaven's Gate. It was a, it was an, a cult. And they committed mass suicide in 1997. And they had this crazy belief that there was a spaceship hiding behind some comet for them. I'm not going to leave anything for that. What about the name David Koresh? Remember that? Right? In Waco, Texas. 54 adults, 21 children were burned in a fire there that that were killed. He said that he was the son of God, the lamb. In November of 2011, there's a guy named Oscar Ortega Hernandez. He got an AK-47 out and he fired nine shots at the White House. And he believed that he was Jesus Christ and he was sent to assassinate the Antichrist, our president. That's crazy right? Four or five pages, a list of people who claim to be Jesus. That's exactly what Gamaliel is saying. If it's not of God, it's not going to work. But here's the question. What about Islam? Because Islam has like been around for centuries and it's growing in popularity and the converts are continuing to grow. Here's the truth though, biblically speaking, that only the church of Jesus Christ is going to prevail. Right? That's what the Bible promises. That's what the truth is getting at for us. And so what do they do to the apostles? We'll see in verse 40. But I'm surprised that Gal- Gamaliel doesn't turn to his, his posse, the Sanhedrin, and say, maybe we should evaluate these guys' devotion to this man. Maybe we should evaluate this message that they just shared with us. Maybe we're missing something, but they don't do that. What do they do instead? Verse 40 says, And when they had called the apostles... They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. They beat them. All right, I want to be very clear with you. This is not a push or a kick or a punch. This is a scourging. This is exactly what Jesus received. It's the 39 lashes with a leather whip with chunks of glass on it and sharp bone and metal balls that would puncture the skin, and the glass and bones would rip the flesh off your back, and it would be, be two whips across the back and one whip across the chest. We know that in Isaiah 53, it says Jesus was being so bad, he didn't even look human anymore. And many times this beating would kill the people. And so they were scourged because of Jesus. 
Right? They took a beating because of their commitment and devotion to him. And so their devotion led them to be obedient. Their devotion provided a mission and purpose for them. But here's the, also, the other reality, is that devotion at times leads to suffering, doesn't it? Devotion at times leads to suffering. I want to be honest with you. I can't relate to this. I can't relate to being beaten. I can't relate to physically receiving harm because of my devotion to Jesus. Can you? But I know this. That God allows us to suffer in many ways as a believer of his because he wants us to use in our suffering that as a vehicle to make his name known and his glory experienced. And we could have an open mic right now and everyone could come down here and they could share the suffering that they've gone through from losing loved ones, parents, and, and, and all sorts of people, grandparents that you could lose to experiencing financial troubles, to losing your house, to disease, everything that we could experience, right? It's terrible the things that we've gone through. We can all agree with that. We can all resonate with that. Pastor Scott shared an amazing question with us a few weeks ago. And we need to revisit it. He said this, in your crisis, would you dare to pray for obedience instead of deliverance? So in the moment when your world's being turned upside down, would you dare to say, God, how can I be obedient to you to give you the most glory? Or are we always praying, God, will you please deliver me? Because here's the truth. It's possible that God's going to get the most glory by delivering you. But it's also possible that he might get the most glory by you suffering a little longer. It's important for us to be able to understand that. I can remember back to the spring of 2006. My wife Stephanie left a friend's house. She was driving home and she noticed she had a large lump below her left, left side of her collarbone. We got home and we, we actually joked. This, we joked that this is cancer. I remember a week later, I was sitting in my staff meeting at the church I was serving at. My phone went off. It was, a one, it was at 1.30 in the middle of the staff meeting, and I got up, I walked out, and it was Steph crying on the other line saying that I have cancer. And I remember that moment changed our life. Right? It's changed everything about how we view life, everything about us, to be honest with you. I remember getting in my car. I remember driving home and just screaming at God, God, not now. God, we love you. God, we're devoted to you. God, we're all in for you. God, we're serving you in ministry. What are you doing? How could you allow this to happen? And seven years of up and down battle, of being cancer-free, of not being cancer-free, of being cancer-free, not being cancer-free, and currently we're cancer-free, living it day by day, loving that moment. But two bone marrow transplants, many rounds of chemo, having both of her hips replaced by the time that she's 27, still has to have both of her shoulders done. I'm thinking, God, what is going on? We'll never be able to have children, our own. All these things that are normal, right? God, why would you, why, how could you allow this to happen? Well, I think the apostles call us and they challenge us with this question. How does your view of the cross impact your view of suffering? How does your view of the gospel, your view of Jesus, help you in your view of suffering? How does it impact it? Because those days when you trust Jesus and you're all in for him and then he takes your world and he turns it upside down, then what's your response going to be? And I'll make the argument that your view of Jesus is vital in that moment. Your view of what he accomplished for you on the cross is vital in that moment. And the problem is if your view of the gospel is moralistic, therapeutic deism, like the book said that I read to you, your life's going to be misery. 
It's going to be misery because what's going to happen for you in that moment when suffering comes, when the Lord turns your life upside down, you're going to scream at God and say, God, I was good, and this is how you repay me? Because it's moralism. I'm doing good. God should be good to me. And this is the problem, is that many times our view of the gospel is that God is all about our happiness and not our holiness. But the God of the Bible says, I'm more about your holiness than I'm your happiness. Crawford Loritz, he's a really well-known preacher. He's a godly man. He loves Jesus. He has this amazing quote, and he says this, Often we turn to God when the foundation is shaking, only to find that it is God who is shaking it. When I saw that quote, I couldn't breathe anymore. And it smacks me in the face, right? Why? Because it's challenging my devotion. Because so many times I think that God should do life and carry out this world how I think he should. But the problem is, is that I'm a small part of his master plan, right? And so what do the, the apostles do? How did their view of the gospel impact their view of suffering? In verse 41, it says this, When they left the presence of the council, they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name What? Okay, apostles, let's review. You were just scourged. And you're leaving saying, I'm so excited that I got to suffer for the name of Jesus. Right? It's kind of like the the, uh, apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10. He says this. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What did Paul, what was Paul doing? Paul was all in, not just for the eternal blessing, but he wanted to experience physical hardship in the now. Here's a question to consider. How did Paul's view of the gospel impact his view of suffering? Are these thoughts supporting that God is about my happiness or my holiness? And so the apostles, they rejoice, it says in verse 41. The word rejoice literally means to be joyful. So I view them as like giving high fives to each other as they leave their beating. What is that? Well, what is Joy. Joy is a supernatural delight in the person of God. That means this, that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. So unless you have Jesus and the Spirit inside of you, you cannot experience joy. It's impossible. Joy is a supernatural delight in the person and the work of Jesus, that we need him. And so because of the apostles' view of Jesus, it dictated their response when they were beaten. Supernatural devotion is totally seen in how we respond when life is hard and difficult. And so let me ask you this question. What gets us through life then? If suffering comes and I'm suffering because of my love for Jesus, what's going to get me through that moment? Well, in Romans chapter 8, it says this in verse 31. It's a significant text. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I love this verse because it's asking a question about by making a statement all at the same time. There's these four words, this one phrase in verse 31 that's significant, and the phrase is this, that God is for us, right? That's a significant phrase, and verse 32 tells us what he does to prove that he's for us. It says this, that he who did not spare his own son but gave him all up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So here's the truth. God is for you because he sent his son Jesus to die for you. God is for you because he's graciously blessed you with all things. Do you realize that if you're a believer this morning in Jesus, that you cannot receive any more grace than you've already received? That he's demonstrated the extent of his grace upon the cross. 
And in verse 35, it says this, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And it lists all these things, tribulation, distress, persecution, right? All these things that are crazy difficult and crazy hard. And so here's the question. I don't want to experience that. I don't know if I want to do that. But does the Bible promise me that I'm not going to experience that? No, but what the Bible does promise me is that none of it's going to prevail against me if I'm a believer in him. And it's significant for me in my walk with Jesus, that God is totally for us, that he is all in for me. And I don't know where you're at in your relationship with Jesus this morning. I don't know what your devotion is. I just want to be clear and honest with you that if you're not willing to be all in, if you're not willing to experience supernatural devotion to the degree of suffering, you're not going to be willing to be devoted to him in obedience or mission either. It's all or nothing, right? It's all or nothing. And so the challenge for you this morning is we, we're going to stand together. We're going to sing about the amazing, our amazing God and how he is absolutely for us. But here's the thing that you need to consider is while we sing these songs, where's the level of your devotion? Are you all in because of what you've witnessed and experienced? And maybe you don't know Jesus this morning. I want to encourage you. We talked about repentance today. This is a, an amazing safe place for you to come and learn about Jesus. So I would encourage you to embrace him as personal Lord and Savior and jump into this mission where he is totally for you, that nothing will ever prevail against you. And that's an amazing message. I know this, and what I love about the gospel is even when I fail, even when my devotion fails, because the God is totally for me, that means this, that God is totally devoted to me in my failure. And that's an encouraging part of my relationship with Jesus. And so I just encourage you to be pondering who our great God is while we sing together. Let's stand.